We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on the Sunday debate, the political outlook on the UK. Academic and author Matthew Goodwin joins columnist and former speechwriter to Tony Blair, Philip Collins, to discuss and debate the build-up to the country's next election. Our host for this discussion is journalist, academic and BBC News broadcaster Philippa Thomas. Let's join Philippa now. Thank you very much. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with Philip Collins and Matthew Goodwin. Our big question this hour is who will win the next UK general election? That's about politics, policy and election readiness. And behind this is a very current, very lively, big debate who's running Britain. What's the nature of the British elite or elites? And that seems to me to be about our political culture and about who's capturing the narrative. I'm sure you'll agree that there's a lot uh, in these topics. So let's get on with introducing today's guests on Intelligence Squared. Philip is a columnist for the Evening Standard and an associate professor in rhetoric at the NSE. He's also the founder and writer-in-chief of The Draft, 
Philip was a columnist at The Times for a decade and is a former chief speechwriter for Prime Minister Tony Blair. Matthew is Professor of Politics at the University of Kent and author of four books, including the Sunday Times bestseller, National Populism. He appears regularly in the media, including the Sunday Times and the BBC. He's advised more than 200 organisations on political issues. And his new book is Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. Let's begin. Phil and Matt, thank you so much for joining us. And Matt, I'm going to start with you by asking you what is succinctly, this new elite that, to quote you in your new book, has taken full control of the political institutions, the think tanks, the civil service, the public bodies, the universities, the creative industries, the cultural institutions, and much of the media. What is it? Well, thank you. And it's good to be with you. The new elite uh, is really a term that I'm using to refer to the rise of the new middle class graduate uh, elite, people who tend to have gone to Oxbridge or Russell Group universities who tend to live in the cities or the university towns, whose parents were often in the managerial or professional class, um, and who crucially have been drifting leftwards on cultural issues over the last 10 years. So on issues such as uh, immigration, uh, the nation, uh, sex, gender, uh, Britishness, who we are, um, the members of the new elite um, have rapidly been moving to more socially liberal, if not radically progressive um, positions. Um, Brexit and Trump um, accelerated that process. So partly the new elite are responding to these revolts by doubling down on their values. But I'm arguing this is actually becoming quite problematic because this group also disproportionately now dominate um, almost every institution in society, they, they are very numerous in the House of Commons on both the left and the right. Uh, they are very prominent in large parts of the media, um, the universities, think tanks, as you just mentioned, the creative industries. And so their values uh, are really the values that are reflected in the national conversation and the political debate. And that's left millions of people feeling as though they're not really in this national conversation um, and their values are certainly not represented and often not respected. Phil, do you agree first that there is this new elite as Matt sees it? And secondly, that it's an elite that's in control? I've spent all of my adult life trying to get into the liberal elite. And just when I arrive, I find it's the wrong place to be. So I don't quite agree, no. I mean, I think there are points of agreement between me and Matt. And, you know, I'm drawing this from, from the book rather than what you just said. We, I mean, I think we agree that these are long-term trends, that these are not the, just the upshot of Dominic Cummings or what was on a red bus or Russian interference. And I think all that kind of stuff, which is really part of the argument in the public sphere at the moment, is, is ridiculous. And there is a serious question here. And so I think we should clear away those things and not, not have a, a disagreement on those. I don't quite agree, no, because, because I don't really like the idea of using liberal as a kind of term of abuse. I think this is a better country to live in than it used to be. What, one of the characteristics, as Matt describes it, of the new elite is they don't think that kind of thing. Well, I do. I think Britain is better if you're a, a black person or an Asian person or a gay person than it was 50 years ago. I think the fact that we have a, 
a prime minister of Indian origin is to me, although he's not, his politics are not to my taste, is an achievement for a country, and I'm glad about that. Uh, and I'd rather have a liberal elite than an illiberal elite. So to the extent that there is a liberal elite, I'm glad about it. But I don't think it's quite as powerful as Matt does. I think his thesis has got some germs of truth, but he exaggerates it. And there are a couple of reasons why. Um, firstly, in one of the rebellions he cites, well, it's not much of a rebellion to put an old Etonian into Downing Street as Conservative Prime Minister uh, in the form of Dr. Boris Johnson. I think, too, with the institutions which, are, which contain uh, people of a more left-wing disposition than the nation. Let's take journalism, for example. Well, it may well be true that the bulk of journalists um, take a, a more liberal progressive view than the nation, but journalism doesn't. I mean, as a left-of-centre political columnist, you feel pretty lonely sometimes. As someone who describes himself as a liberal, I get assaulted on all sides. It's not really true. Anyone who's seen British newspapers over the last 30 or 40 years would hardly suggest that they've been captured by a liberal elite. If only they had. Uh, the opposite is rather the case. I think, too, the BBC, where, again, I would concede that given that the BBC recruits people generally from London and generally they're from graduates, they're almost bound to be more to the left than the country as a whole. But the BBC is also subject to very strenuous regulation. And I know, and Philippa, you will know this too, that people at the BBC, although they may not always succeed in being impartial, are always trying to be. That that professional obligation is important and it, it overrides what their own views may be. And I don't join in with the bashing of the BBC, which happened over Brexit from both sides, that they were culpable on either side. I think they were trying to do their best to be impartial in a difficult time. And the important point there is that there's an institutional obligation, which is important in withhold, upholding the values uh, that we want to, to see, irrespective of what the people in those institutions think privately. And that ha that's true of, of right-of-centre journalists like Andrew Neil, who was impeccable, in my view, and it's true of, of journalists on, on the left of centre. So I think there are institutional safeguards, which means that even if there is something of a liberal elite, that doesn't necessarily translate automatically and directly into, the, into advantage in society. And I think we'll come on to the politics where I think that's especially true. We will. But Matt, first, your response are you being unnecessarily defensive on, on behalf of those you feel are left behind, ignored? Well, there are a few, a few, a few things I'd, I'd just push back on. I mean, firstly, I think there is a tendency among social liberals um, to overlook the extent to which liberalism is being corrupted. And what we are living through at the moment, as I argue in the book, is, a, is essentially a reconfiguration of liberalism. Phil, which strikes me, and I don't, we don't know each other very well, but strikes me as a, a socially liberal uh, commentator, you know, who's broadly on 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 side with the liberal consensus um, and many of the ways in which the country has changed. But we now know from the research that about 15% of Britain is represented by who we call radical progressives, who on lots of issues actually are not that liberal at all. And I suppose if I'm taking aim at anybody, I'm taking aim at, at moderate liberals who have allowed uh, radical progressives, for example, to be as suspicious of the scientific method as many populists are on the right, who refuse to accept any evidence that challenges their creed, who view society chiefly as being organised as a 
power struggle between competing identity groups who have very little interest in individual rights. And so when I point to this elite, I'm saying, look, in a sense, there's a sort of competition going on. There's a kind of old, more liberal, more establishment elite, which you can still see, but there's this new radically progressive group who really are not upholding the the values of liberalism. And secondly, with regards to media, because it's a really important point, What's happened is essentially the media class has been transformed over the last 20 years. About 90% of journalists now belong to the graduate class. About half of them have passed through Oxbridge. Uh, Local and regional media have completely collapsed. So often the younger journalists who are going into the media newsroom today are going straight from university and often view themselves as activist journalists rather than the old school journalists that Phil talks about, and I agree with him, uh, were completely um, committed to the search for truth that appreciated the importance of, of Um, exposing people to different viewpoints and were often grounded in many of the communities they represented. Um, Today, it's very difficult for people to break into the media unless they already belong to this new uh, elite graduate class. And I don't think that's actually helping society uh, overall. And where I work, lastly, in universities, you see this imbalance most acutely where the ratio of left to right voices within the universities has gone from about three to one in the 1960s to about 10 to one today. And when you get that ideological monoculture, that that environment that is very hostile now to contrarians, to non-conformists, what you tend to, to get as a result is harassment of people who do express a different view on gender, on immigration, on Brexit, whatever it is, um, or you just get large amounts of self-censorship, people not saying what they really want to say because they feel they're being harassed. And that, I think, is a symbol, actually, of what's going on more generally. So, Phil, can I ask that we now relate this back to politics, to the way people vote? Matt says one of the reasons Labour lost the last election was because it, quote, double down on the values and the voice of the new elite while ignoring the periphery. Why do you think they lost the last election? Well, I think there's some truth in that. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. I think it's impossible to look at the last election and not recognise that Labour was putting up a leader as potential prime minister who wasn't fit for that role. And that was a very significant part of why Labour had lost lost that election. I think Labour lost the election in part also because it had spent quite a long time trying to defy the referendum results, which was a fatal mistake, something I was completely opposed to right from the start. I, I was a Remain voter, it won't surprise you to know, but I took the view immediately that that referendum was lost by my side, that it was important that it be enacted. It had to be respected. And uh, and to defy that, to seek to turn it over, was a, was a mistake politically. It was, it was wrong in itself and it was wrong politically. So I think there are all those reasons why Labour lost the last election. They were, they were absolutely not um, deserving of winning it. Also, into the bargain, you had for that 2019 was the Brexit election that we thought 2017 might be. 2017 wasn't that, in fact, but 2019 was, because Boris Johnson posed it on that question. And Johnson himself was a charismatic politician who had the capacity to draw votes from people the Conservative Party have not always drawn them from. Now, I I don't think we should overstate that either. I come from a 
small C and large C conservative background in a Lancashire mill town, which has always elected conservatives to the Houses of Parliament. And they liked Boris Johnson there too. So I was very well aware of his appeal. I was also very well aware from that place that we were going to leave the European Union. I never for one second thought the referendum would, would be won by the Remain sign. And that, that combination of an absolutely disgraceful leader on the Labour side, plus a charismatic leader on the Tory side who had the issue of the hour and was on the right side of it, meant that Labour got thrashed. It was an absolute pasting. But it's very interesting how quickly things have turned around. Because one of the points Matt makes in the book is about the volatility of current politics, and he's quite right. But the volatility of current politics is acting against some of the other things he talks about, which is the translation of the new elite into politics. So I think we might be, we might be undergoing a really rapid recovery by the Labour Party, so that even from the worst defeat since 1935, perhaps even to the point where it might win the next election. OK, today's... Poll of polls in Politico, the daily poll of polls there, puts Labour 15 points ahead at 44% to 29%. That's a poll lead that's been tightening. And I want to put it to Matt now. What do you think it would take for Labour to actually win the next election? Well, I can give you the numbers. To win a majority, Labour need to be about 12 and a half points ahead in the opinion polls. Uh, for the Conservatives to, to win another majority, they need to be about three and a half points ahead. Um, but if you drill down into those numbers, there are a few things that I think a lot of people at the moment are missing. Uh, the first is we have a large number of voters who are undecided. And if you look at Boris Johnson's voters from 2019, um, and I've just been running focus groups in the Red Wall around Stoke-on-Trent, um, about one third of that group um, are currently saying they're not sure who they're going to vote for. Now, are they all going to vote for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, my instinct says no. Um, but are they going to go back to Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives? Well, they need to be given a reason to go back to them. Which brings me to the second key point, which is that we have been living through a realignment. And that realignment, I think most people, Phil, will, I hope, uh, will hope, agree with me. Um, it's been coming for about 20 years, essentially. And I argue in the book, it's rooted largely in some of the failures of both Thatcherism and um, New Labour. But what really has gone wrong for the Conservatives since 2019 is they have not really supplied that realignment with a message that can hold that coalition together. So if you take the, the, the biggest issue of all for 2019 Conservatives, once you take away cost of living, it's immigration. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of a 2019 Conservative voter, what have you got? You've got net migration levels of 504,000, higher than any uh, thing that was seen before the Brexit referendum, and you've got the small boats crisis on the borders. So that is one example of how the realignment that we're living through is really being driven by public demand. But supplying that on the Conservative side has been woeful. Boris Johnson was very inept at actually appealing to his voters for lots of different reasons. If Sunak can do a better job, then that gap is going to narrow considerably. And it's not inconceivable at all to see the Conservatives winning another majority. What, Phil, are the potential winning issues for Labour? Where, if you had Keir Starmer's ear now, would you say you've got to be zeroing in on this? Oh, just being not the Conservatives. That's always the most important thing. Change. Yes, exactly. Everybody always demands of the Labour Party. They've got to have a vision for the country. Very few people ever demand that of the Conservative Party, but the Conservative Party managed to win very often. I mean, did David Cameron have an exciting, enticing vision for, for Britain? No. 
He was just just better than Gordon Brown. It was time for a change. So the the basic, the fundamental fact is, have we tired of conservatives after 13 years? And also the point Matt made, where which is very important, which is the Tory coalition. What's the glue of that coalition from 2019? Well, then it was Brexit, obviously. The the one issue which divide, which united the people from where I grew up around. Bury in, in Greater Manchester, along with people in the Shire counties, the tr- more traditional Conservative voters, is they were strong advocates of leaving the European Union. Their interests on many other things were really very different indeed. And it's not a particularly stable coalition, I think, unless you can recreate something which glues it together. I, I agree that immigration is the most likely candidate for that glue, but I can't quite see the Conservative Party can hold it together. And so for that reason, I do think they are struggling. I think the Conservative Party, too, has to win a, a majority overall in order to stay in government, whereas Labour doesn't have to. I think Keir Starmer will be Prime Minister, and I phrase that advisedly. I'm not going further than that uh, because I think Labour could fall short of an overall victory. Bear in mind they start 80 seats behind. It's a long way to come. Um, Starmer needs a swing better than Attlee, better than Blair. Uh, and I'm not quite sure he's as great a politician as either of those two. Um, and, but nevertheless, if Labour falls short of that majority, I think the upshot of that would be that Starmer would be Prime Minister. I don't think either of you has mentioned the cost of living, the public sector, crumbling infrastructure, strikes, Surely. I mean, you know, I was a reporter in the States for a long time and I still think Bill Clinton got it right. It's the economy. Yeah, I did. I did mention cost of living and fairness as the number one issue for 2019 Conservatives. Um, Look, let me just step back and look at, at global politics for a minute, because this is a really important point. If you look at every election that has happened since inflation has has come onto the scene, At almost every election, incumbent governments have either been thrown out of power or have been considerably weakened. Macron, uh, Joe Biden, okay, the Democrats did better than expected at the midterms, but they still lost uh, the House. Um, Sri Lanka, Sweden, Italy, France, uh, Colombia, I could go on and on and on. Um, Inflation is a total nightmare for incumbent governments. And if you look at the research on how inflation tends to impact the next election, um, there's a study recently in my discipline, political science, that shows that um, if an election is held a couple of years after inflation has peaked, which is what will happen in the UK, then the incumbent party tends to lose that election three quarters of the time. So in other words, the odds are, are firmly stacked against Rishi Sunak simply because of the politics of inflation. So it's not impossible for him to to win an election. It's very hard, which raises the question of how can he navigate the cost of living? Well, as we know that the gamble that number 10 are now making is that they can point to um, a dramatic decline in inflation, a decline in interest rates, um, alongside a decline in the number of small boats on the channel, so that by the winter of 2020. Uh, four, they're able to say essentially what David Cameron said in 2015 when he won his surprise majority, which is we're over the worst, uh, we've turned the corner, don't let the Labour Party ruin it. Uh, that will essentially be be the narrative. Whether it cuts through, um, I, I, I will have to wait and see. But the playbook is clearly visible. That's essentially what they're going to be gambling on. And the latest inflation figures suggest maybe you know, that's more of a gamble than they anticipated three three to five months ago. 
but that's that's the play that they're that they're bringing into the next election. Phil, is there a danger that the playbook for Labour on the economy gets overshadowed by the culture wars? Well, there's a danger, but I think Labour will push hard back against that. I mean, Labour Labour is always vulnerable. Uh, on economic policy. It's always a difficulty for Labour because one of the things you have to try and neutralise in the Labour Party is is a reputation, whether deserved or not, for profligacy. Um, It is my view that the general election has already happened in the sense that the things that we will subsequently use to explain it have probably already taken place. And they're probably the, the, the trust quarteng budget and inflation. Now, it's not impossible that some things could happen between now and then that would fundamentally alter things, but it's not likely. And I suspect that Sunak will be able to reduce the deficit because Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have brought, they've tried the cunning ruse of actually trying to govern the country, which the Conservative Party had stopped doing for quite a long time. And they've obviously brought back a certain stability and gravity to government. Of course they have. And that will be rewarded to some degree. Um, But I think that we are, you're quite right to bring us to the cost of living, because for a few years we've been toying with the idea that economics was no longer the best prism through, through which to view politics. And I have some sympathy with that view too. It's clear that cultural questions are becoming more and more prominent. But it looks as though this actually will be a slight reversion to an older kind of conventional politics, which is a relatively um, economic election in which we judge whether or not we're going to be better off um, with which with which crowd. And that, of course, is the Conservative hope. They hope they can pin on the Labour Party the idea that any incipient recovery will be jeopardised if you go to those inveterate spenders, the Labour Party. And that's why the discipline that Rachel Reeves is showing and will show, I think, is a critical component in Labour being seen as a safe repository for people's hopes. That's always a risk for the Labour Party, and it's a risk again. But I think Starmer and Reeves know that. I think they've seen it before. And I think the big thing they've got, is, which, they, which Ed Miliband didn't have, which Jeremy Corbyn didn't have, is that when people look at Keir Starmer, they might not think he's the most charismatic and enticing politician they've ever seen. But when asked, can you imagine that person as prime minister, they are inclined to say yes rather than no. And it's not an unimaginable prospect. And that's a crucial deterrent to a party going into government. If your leader is just not someone you can imagine in office. Matt, I'm going to come back to you on that. But first, I just want to remind those who are with us uh, that you can make your feelings known and ask your questions too. On Twitter, we're using the, the hashtag IQ2. But you can also ask questions by clicking on the Ask Question button under the video screen and add your name if you want me to know your name. And then, of course, press send. And I'll start taking questions quite soon. But on that question, uh, Matthew Goodwin, of whether Keir Starmer is an unimaginable party uh, prime minister uh, or actually readily imaginable, where do you stand? Well, I don't think he's as unimaginable as as John Major or or Theresa May were. I mean, I think, you know, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them, and he may end up there by default. As Phil said, I mean, there is is a majority or bust problem for the Conservatives. You know, nobody's going to work with them under the current 
the current sort of political climate. So, so that that is essentially how Starmer finds his way into power. But I do think he is vulnerable, and I think he's vulnerable in a number of ways. Um, if I were providing advice to Rishi Sunak and Co, I would be telling them to keep the volume up on all of the cultural questions, not just immigration, but also uh, some of the things that remarkably Labour have targeted in recent weeks. I mean, the, the, the child exploitation grooming scandal Labour have attacked Rishi Sunak over, which to me seems remarkable given what we saw in Rotherham under uh, a Labour council. Um, I'd, be, I'd be suggesting to Rishi Sunak that he may want to talk a lot about security. When I'm in focus groups, um, it's very clear that the dominant narrative in the country is security. People want uh, economic security from the cost of living. They want physical security from a collapsing national health service. They want national security from the small boats. Um, and they want cultural security from this sort of sweeping, radical, um, woke progressivism, which many people, and I completely understand why um, some will roll their eyes at this, but many people in the country feel that British culture, history and identity is being eroded and that they cannot say what they really want to say because of political correctness and these speech codes over these issues. Now, if you look at America or you look at Europe, which is an interesting experiment at the moment, compare and contrast the British Conservatives with the US Republicans, with the Italians, with the French, with the Swedish Conservatives, and the British Conservatives are actually out of step with where conservatism is in other parts of the world. Because elsewhere, conservatives have been very um, willing to, to really venture into a lot of these cultural arguments, to really turn up the volume on them and to increase the salience of them. And when they do that, as we saw in Scotland with Nicola Sturgeon, of course, what you tend to find is that the public break in a conservative direction, 80-20 against the gender recognition reform bill. Most voters today, more of them back the Rwanda plan than oppose it. 80% think the borders are out of control and a majority will say things like migration still too high. So those cultural questions um, still actually, I think, wield enormous amounts of electoral power. And I suspect Sunak will inevitably have to turn the volume up on them. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Just before I bring Phil back in, when you talk about the American comparison, uh, Matt, that reminds me of What's the Matter with Kansas, which you'll know, a book that was written by Thomas Frank back in something like, it was the early 2000s, arguing that, you know, conservatives keep winning elections 
because they elevate cultural issues over economic self-interest. And it could be argued that's what's happening here. Yeah, I think I think perhaps. I mean, Frank also wrote a wonderful book called Listen Liberals, which was about how the new elite in America, in the same way as their British counterparts, were, were losing touch with many of the voters they need to win back. I mean, Phil will know this statistic. He'll have lived it in Lancashire as well as I do. Here's, a, here's one, one stat to keep in mind. Once you take away London and the university towns, Labour has still not won the popular vote across England. Uh, among you know working class voters, non-graduates, pensioners since 2001. I mean, Labour is still structurally very, very weak and vulnerable across a large chunk of the country. How can it re-engage with that? I, it, I personally think it's going to need more than just um, we don't like the Tories. I think Labour's brand is still um, problematic not just around managing the economy, but also people do have an ingrained suspicion that Labour is simply going to open the floodgates to a very radical identitarian project of the sort that we've seen in Scotland. Uh, and that makes a lot of voters nervous because they remember the Blair years. And as I argue in the book, and maybe Phil, you know, being being Tony Blair's speechwriter may have thoughts on this, but one of the argu- arguments I make is if you look at back at the 2010s, the rise of Farage, Brexit, Boris Johnson, the stage for all of those people was really set by New Labour's embrace of mass migration in 2004. That was fundamentally central, and it was a blowback to Labour's position on that issue, which really created all of the turbulence of the last 10 years. Philip Collins. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's just chronologically obviously true. I think Blair, in many other ways, was a conservative, though. I think the best and most successful Labour leaders are always quietly conservative. Attlee certainly was. And in many respects, on crime, for example, so was Blair. So I don't think the Labour Party will fall into the trap that sets out. But I think it's too obvious a bear trap. And I think that they will close those things down. They're being slow to do so. But I think that there's no chance that the Labour Party will enter an election with any prospects of it being a sort of labelled as a woke identitarian party. Uh, I think, too, that um, talking about um, drawing lessons from American politics is classic new elites behaviour. Um, I'd never draw any lessons from America. It's an entirely different country and one with very few lessons for Britain. Um, so I, I'm not, I don't think there's, I don't really buy the idea that this will be an election in which the cultural politics will overpower the economics of it. I'm not saying they're not part of the mix. They're always part of a mix, and they're growing. But we, we agree on that, that over the course of time, glacially, those things are definitely growing. But I think we're seeing, because of the cost of living crisis, and also because I think of the really parlous state of the public services infrastructure, I think there's also conventional elements in this election to come, which will redound to the credit of the Labour Party. And in any moment of change, and we do agree we're in a moment of change, there's always more the same, uh, more, more was like yesterday than is, than is different. And that's true today. The, the change is always conspicuous and salient and makes for better copy. But underneath it, there's also some things which are continuous. And if you go into an election with a standard of living really on the floor, uh, in the wake of high inflation, and with the National Health Service in particular, really in a state of some disrepair, you are going to struggle to win the election. Mm. Phil, what matters most for the voters that Keir Starmer needs to re-attract? 
the thing that matters most to them is, as Matt said earlier, the cost of living. I mean, they are they are the very people who are who are not well off, um, who have not had any great benefits, for whom life has been tough and difficult, and um, and it's the cost of living which matters most to them. And that's why I I wasn't just being glib when I said don't be the Tories. Uh, what I meant was is there, there's a limited amount you can actually do about that from opposition, but it's very probable those people will punish the government for the the economic state they find themselves in. So I think that will be the pivotal issue in the seats that Labour needs to win in order to form a government. I've got questions coming in about Brexit, about um, the NHS, about immigration here. Uh, and I'll remind you that you can ask questions either using uh, the button below the video screen uh, or Twitter, hashtag IQ2. Something I want to put to both of you before bringing in questions is Scotland. Because are we at a point where the question who will win the next UK general election really depends on the plight of the SNP. I'm aware that we have many um, uh, members of the audience who are not in the UK, uh, many in the US, for example. So just to point out that the SNP, I think, currently holds 45 out of 59 Scottish seats at Westminster. Um, Matt, first. Yeah, well, Scotland is fascinating for all sorts of reasons, um, but, but one of which, as I reminded Conservatives as they were celebrating the downfall of Nicola Sturgeon, is that actually, over the longer run, it makes a Labour recovery so much easier because the more ground that the Labour Party make back north of the border, the less hard they need to work to win back those areas of non-London England that I just referred to. So potentially this is a real game changer uh, in British politics. But the other lesson I draw from Scotland, which I think is important, remember people used to say culture wars don't make a difference, right? Don't do culture, focus on economics, just keep it on the bread and butter issues. Actually, Scotland gives us a really interesting lesson because the moment the SNP introduced the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, which, um, which would legislate to allow 16-year-olds to legally change their gender without medical supervision uh, and after only living in their quote-unquote new gender for a short period of time, once voters took a look at that, once the salience of it increased, 80% said, no thanks, I don't really like this. And on a whole list of issues... You look at the polling that's emerged in Scotland since, people feel that actually what happened is the SNP activists turned in on themselves, became obsessed, not just with independence, but with these sort of, um, you know, woke type issues, and they weren't focusing on a whole array of other things. So there's a lesson in here, actually, for global politics, too, which is if you increase the salience of these types of issues, the public is not 50-50 on this. The public is typically 80-20, 70-30 against some of these more, um, shall I say, crazy ideas around, you know, renaming pregnant women, pregnant persons, viewing our societies as overwhelmingly racist, taking a very negative view of our history. All of these types of things that we associate with radical progressivism, they are vote losers. And Scotland is another example of that. So that was your your answer to how does the plight of the SNP and what's happening in Scotland right now factor into UK 
politics. I want to put the same question to, to Phil. Well, I would have thought that the lesson from Matt's story is absolutely don't do cultural politics. It'll blow up in your, in your hands. Um, it was a disaster for the SNP, and it makes a big difference to the Labour Party. If there are 15 or 20 seats suddenly come into play, that makes it considerably easier to get close to the victory line. So I do think it's a big difference. I, I think Nicola Sturgeon was the most impressive politician in British politics for a long time, and her departure it makes a very big difference. It's the, uh, it's the single biggest event that's happened since the uh, trust Kwarteng budget. So it's very significant. And I think it's very much to the benefit of the Labour Party and makes their task considerably easier. Let me bring in some questions now from those who are with us in the audience. Um, uh, just working down in the order that they came in. Uh, one from Adam says, uh, Adam says, I work in Canary Wharf. And the Brexit vote has negatively impacted the city in many ways, which has left another black hole in, in the UK, income taxes, treasury, etc. I understand Matt believes Brexit voters have lost confidence in the Tories due to how Brexit is handled. Isn't it the case that many who voted Brexit regret it because of the economic impact and might now vote for Labour? I think I'll bring that to you first, Matt. The mood music on Brexit has certainly changed voters, including about 10 to 20% of leavers um, now say that essentially Brexit, in hindsight, was the wrong decision. Voters have become more certain that it's having a negative economic impact on the country, that we should remember that still 70 to, 70 to 75% of leavers will even today say it's the right decision. But the mood music has definitely changed. Will that push them into the arms of the Labour Party? However, um, I'm, I'm less convinced. I think it will be more about the day-to-day uh, it will be more about the day-to-day -day issues. It will be the apathy. It will be the sense of disillusionment with the state of the country. Um, but isn't it revealing that, in essence, what we are seeing at the next election is the rise of a new consensus in British politics, a big consensus shared by both the left and the right. On Brexit, both Labour and the Conservatives are committed to Brexit. Keir Starmer's made that clear. Um, on immigration, both are pretty comfortable, actually, with record rates of inward migration. On the economy, there's not really that much difference between them. Labour might talk a bit more about green issues, but basically, when it comes to the long-term economic strategy, there's not really that much difference between them. So perhaps Brexit has now become part of this new um, uh, big consensus in British politics shared by both the left and the right. Um, and that, I think, is also going to be interesting to see the reaction to that, um, to see whether that, in, in essence, creates room for some kind of alternative in the future as a consensus between the Conservatives and Labour in the late um, 2000s arguably did. I mean, it was that big consensus, uh, the Liberal consensus between New Labour and, and, and the Conservatives, which created room for for Nigel Farage, which created room as well for the Greens and the Lib Dems to to sort of nip at their nip at their margins. So, so that in essence is also, I think, worth watching. Phil, I've talked to Labour voters and strategists who are frustrated that at the top they won't go harder on the damage that has been done by Brexit to the UK economy. I understand that, but I'm with the leadership on this. I think they were right to go quiet on it. I think they should have gone quiet earlier. As I said before, I thought the strategy of going hard after the referendum was entirely wrong. I thought they should have voted for Theresa May's deal. I thought they should have had an entirely different strategy. So I, I would endorse the, the fact of going quiet. Now, I understand why that leads 
people to be frustrated because, of course, you're then not talking about something very significant. I understand that that can be really sort of annoying. However, I think politically it's the right thing to do because a large number of the voters you need to win back voted to leave the European Union, and you need to understand why they did so and respect why they did so. You're never going to win people back if you essentially say to them they're stupid. And that some of them, a significant fraction of them, are now coming to the view that Brexit probably was a mistake. But for lots of people, I don't think it could have gone right because people voted to leave the European Union for very many reasons. There wasn't just a single reason. There were very, very many reasons. And some people were expressing their anxiety and annoyance at the way things had gone for a long time in, in a rather general way, not particularly tied to the European Union, but an opportunity to kick the political class. Now, that's an understandable reaction, but it's not possible that that could be fixed within a few years by leaving the European Union, because the thing that the referendum triggered was irrelevant to the to their concerns. I'm not minimizing their concerns or saying they're not, they don't exist. They do. I'm just saying that isn't an answer to them. And so two or three years after we've left the European Union, it's no surprise that those things aren't any different. The only good thing from Brexit might have been if in the wake of it, we'd started to attack some of the things which are really wrong with the country, like the fact we don't educate a big chunk of our population properly, uh, like the fact that the housing market is completely dysfunctional. But we haven't done any of those things. So the only dividend I could have seen from Brexit, which was a focus on those issues, has not happened. Another question uh, from a member of the audience, and I'm going to put it to you both and Phil first this time. Uh, it says the British people broadly welcomed the Ukrainian refugees, but there's quite wide support for the government's Rwanda policy to deal with the small boats crisis. Does that make the British people racist? No, I don't think it makes them racist. Um, I, I, I think there's no profit in or, or truth in throwing around accusations like that. Um, I don't think it makes them racist at all. Uh, I'm against the Rwanda policy for an entirely practical reason, which is I don't think it will work. Uh, I. I think it's perfectly reasonable that a government should have a policy to curb illegal migration. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a clue in the title. Um, and we should do so as humanely as we can. Uh, but And I don't think this policy passes that test. And I don't think it passes the test of being practicable either, because the capacity of Rwanda to take anybody is so small. So I, I'm opposed to it, but I don't, I, I don't think it's remotely helpful to then charge people who are in favour of it uh, as being motivated by racism. How do you grade this policy, Matthew, of the Rwanda uh, uh, as, a, as a, an answer to the small boats crisis? Well, I suspect over the next year or so, um, we're going to discover that um, within the context of current laws, it's not going to solve the problem. And then the Conservatives are going to face a very acute dilemma as to whether they want to go even further in suggesting that we need to, for example, toughen up existing legislation even more, which will be difficult within the context of international law, or secondly, start to consider what they're hinting at, which is leaving things like the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, the blunt reality is that outside of London and, you know, the middle class graduates, 
Um, large majorities of people, between 70 and 80%, feel the border is out of control and they would go much further than most of our political class on both the left and all the right to, to try and bring back that, that sense of control. Um, so there's certainly public appetite for doing something beyond what we've currently got. I don't think personally that's racist. I think actually, if anything, it's being proactive at ensuring we don't go back to what we've just gone through during the 2010s, which is to provide an easy open goal for people who will go much further than our established politicians. I mean, you know, the blunt reality is if you're going to go up against Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives at the next election on the issue of illegal migration, you have to have something better to say than we just want legal and safe routes, because that's not an answer. Well, what numbers? What's the cap? How many people will you accept? You know, these are things that, that are going to be debated and discussed. And also amid a global migration crisis, which, you know, this is just really the beginning of that. This is the beginning of a century or more of demographic change. What's the long-term strategy for securing the UK? What's the long-term uh, view of how we're going to deal with this issue? Because at the moment, we don't have one on either the left or the right. I think both parties are being disingenuous and are leading voters on. And public confidence in the system which is where I begin to get very concerned, has collapsed. And once people no longer believe the system, that once they no longer think it's, it's securing um, uh, the country, as we saw this week with stories of IS uh, and Islamist um, terrorists coming over, um, then you start to create real potential for something much uglier. So hopefully we'll get that long-term thinking before too soon. Phil, your thoughts on the potential electoral threat from the harder right? I don't rate it as a very particularly uh, hard threat. I think the threat on these issues comes from if, if in the event that the Conservative Party policy were successful, then I think there'd be an electoral benefit to it. But I really don't think it will be. I think that there's something both frivolous and therefore rather depressing in the Conservative Party um, response at the moment, which they know it's unpractical. They absolutely know that. And so it's a deeply cynical political playing of an event. And there's something disreputable about that. Um, it's, it's not, I don't, don't think it's racist, but I do think it's disreputable. And because they know it's not going to work. Now, if by some miracle or, or perhaps some stroke of good fortune, they were able to find that um, the numbers trying to come into Britain had declined very significantly before the next election. Of course, they'd trumpet that as a policy success, uh, and anybody in that position would do, would do likewise. So that would change things, but I don't think there's any profit in going further. And I wouldn't, and also, I think we have to sometimes say, even if there were a political benefit in going harder and nastier, that we shouldn't do that. I mean, sometimes, Matt, I don't know whether, you're, whether you are an observer or a participant. I've always taken you to be an observer. But sometimes I wonder because I think, well, How is it a good idea? How do you fix it, Phil? How do you I fix it? How do you fix know. the crisis? I, I honestly don't but, know the answer but this to is, this, is, this is my point. I'm happy to lose friends on the liberal left over this. Unless you fix the problem... Well, you don't know how to fix on. the problem it's, either. It's going to carry on. But you don't know how to fix the problem either because the things yeah, I, you're I, suggesting... I really... No, I, I really do. I think, no, you I think really I'm, don't. So that, they're, they're not, not going to work just by coming out of the convention and, and, and doing, doing what exactly? I mean, it, it, I, I don't see any sort of solution to the massive global crisis that you are setting out just by being nastier. 
That it's doesn't not, strike. I don't, well, I wouldn't suggest it's about being nasty. What I would say is it's about adapting, modifying laws so they are a better reflection of where we are in 2023, not 1951. Because going going by the the Labour book or going by the narrative that I hear from people like Phil and others is well, actually, what we need to do is just be nice to everybody, and we need to stop. I didn't say that. The volume or I didn't say that. Where, where do you get that from? Controls are nasty. I didn't say that. Or you you described it as a nasty response. Yeah. Most I think other European is, countries is an ideal time Italy for... to Sweden are pursuing much more assertive policy responses on this issue. And if we don't do it, then we're going to open the door to something else. I don't think that so, makes me a participant, Phil. I think that makes me a realist. Matt Goodwin, that brings in a question that's just... Just trying to work out what you us. actually think, because you never you, say... I'm going to let you come back, both of you. There's a question specifically for Matthew Goodwin here. Your critics say that you've moved from political analyst to political activist. Do you agree? I might add to that. Is, is that is that a problem for you? No, I, I, would, I would respond to that by saying I've changed my mind on a number of issues over the last 10 years. One of them is I've changed my mind and lost some friends on the left because of their response to the things that have caused what we've been discussing, the rise of populism, Brexit. I was particularly uh, influenced by the reaction to the Brexit referendum. I'm similar to Phil. I come from a pretty ordinary part of the country and the reaction among the sort of new graduate elite to Brexit voters, I thought, was disreputable, to use a word that Phil used. I think it was pretty disgusting. Um, but more generally, I think I've been... I've become disillusioned with the inability of liberalism to show any willingness to compromise. It just, there has been no discussion of compromise over the last 10 years. It's essentially been, it's this way or the highway to voters. And I think lots of um, people who perhaps have found themselves shocked by the events of the last decade have decided that actually they're just going to double down on people like them, on people who share their values, who view much of the rest of the country as a sort of assortment of racist gammons and ignorant bigots, and they're going to carry on regardless. And if that puts me at, in a box of being unpopular and saying, actually, I don't really share the view of most of my university colleagues. I don't share the view of much of the commentariat. I don't share the, the view that we saw reflected in the aftermath of 2016 and then again in 2019. I'm happy to be that voice. That That's fine. Um, because so I think Phil if you look at our national conversation, you know, most people are essentially saying the same thing. Um, and I don't think we've responded to to the 2016 revolts anywhere near as well as we should have done. So, Phil, what do you think about what you're hearing there? Well, I mean, liberalism, which doesn't compromise, is not liberalism. I mean, you're saying it's tipped over into something else. A true liberal, of course, is is someone who is always keen and interested in hearing opposing voices. That's the great bequest of liberal political thought to, to democratic nations is exactly that kind of conversation. So it, it just doesn't make sense to say that liberalism is now defined by a lack of compromise. No, it ceased to be liberalism, if that's what you're saying. It's something else. And so I, I, I really disparage this use of liberal as a kind of term of abuse. Another pointless import from United States politics. They're not liberal. If they, if they refuse to compromise, if they're being insulting, that's not a liberal point of view at all. So I don't. I, I think that that terminology is wrong. I think you need to refine the terminology and be more precise. I have. Well, that's, that's point, just briefly, I have a pointed but... question for each of you from a very engaged audience, really listening to to the way you're uh, talking to each other. One is, 
um, uh, fulfill first. It's it's questioning whether Keir Starmer can reconcile the two main bases of support for his party, the so-called metropolitan liberal elites and those from more economically deprived areas. There is a challenge here. Yeah, I don't know if is. you see it in those terms. Absolutely, there's a challenge there. I mean, it's the same challenge the Conservative Party. I mean, I said before, the Tories are struggling to hold together their coalition. And likewise, Labour has a challenge too, of course, because there's, there's a difference. But then Labour has always been made up of that coalition. It, the Labour Party was founded by that coalition. It's in very different proportions these days. There's no question about it. I don't not pretending it's 1906. Um, and that is the task. That is the task, is to find a message which can unite those two groups with their evident differences. But their point of similarity is uh, a desire for uh, economic security and a desire for a country's public realm which is working well. And that's why the message will be concentrated on those things. Obvious points of vulnerability where those two parts of the coalition differ on questions of culture. And that's why the cultural flank is a problem for the Labour Party. But the task of a political strategy is to try and make the things you're strong on more salient than the other things. And that's what Labour will try to do. OK, so the demographic question for you, uh, Matt Goodwin, comes from Millie. She says, how can the Tories win the young person's vote when pensioners have their triple lock and home ownership is increasingly out of reach for everyone under 40, except for members of what she calls the inheritocracy? Well, firstly, I like the use of inheritocracy. I, I might start using that myself. Um, the short answer is they're not winning the youth vote. They're losing it rapidly. Only about uh, 10%, 10 to 15% of Gen, Gen Z who were born uh, after 96 are planning to vote Conservative at the next election. The vast majority are planning to vote for parties on the Liberal left. That is especially true, by the way, for young women, uh, and especially young university-educated women who are, again, um, like graduates generally, moving sharply leftwards on many of the issues that we've been discussing. And this is one of the trends to watch over the next decade or so. It's also happening in the US, so we do have some things in common electorally. And there's a question going on here, which is, well, well, how are the Conservatives not only going to reconnect with younger voters, who, who are also about 30 points less likely to vote than older voters, but also young women? And I think the Conservatives over the last decade have have alienated that group uh, significantly. They, they're not thinking about it as much as they should be because their assumption is, well, actually, they're still doing reasonably well among the over 60s and they're more likely to vote. And also young graduates tend to migrate into the cities and the university towns where their reach is actually strong, but it's narrow. As we saw in, at the last election in 2019, graduates um, uh, tended to concentrate very narrowly. So under a first-past-the-post system, the Conservatives, I think, are, are also perhaps you know, being led to, to, to maybe not give that issue as much thought as they should do. But on the housing, on the environment, climate, um, you know, they are, they are certainly on the wrong side uh, of, that, of that wave. Um, but, there is, but there is a question I just briefly in the last few moments wanted to throw out, to throw out which is, you know, when, you, when we talk about these issues... You know, one thing that's increasingly coming to light for me is the way in which um, moderate liberals will never call out those on their left flank on these issues. You know, we talk about the free speech crisis in universities. Could the same not be said about moderate conservatives? No, and but the this right, is a really important harder. point because this is a question. Well, to, so is mine. Yeah, but when we when we talk about a free speech crisis, all I was told by moderate liberals is 
we don't have a crisis. And then academics started getting sacked. When we talk about public concern over immigration, moderate liberals play it down. When we look at the Gender Recognition Reform Act in Scotland, everybody says, oh, it's not an issue, it's not an issue, then it becomes an issue. So yes, liberalism has been corrupted, it is being corrupted. When are liberals going to call it out? When are moderate liberals going to stand up on Twitter and say, we don't agree with people being mobbed, we don't agree with this cancellation culture we've got, we don't agree with this dogmatic tone that comes with the new woke uh, religion, because I don't see many moderate liberals calling it out, Phil. Um, I don't see any at all. I'm, I'm happy, to, I'm happy to, to say all of those things. I'm absolutely happy to say all those things. There are others who do so. I mean, Jonathan Haidt, one of the friends of this institution, has done so repeatedly and uh, at great length. Uh, Richard Reeves has written a very good book on on boys in the United States, in which he's he's making the same same sorts of points. Matthew Dancona has repeatedly stepped in on this side of the argument. He'd regard himself as a as, as a liberal conservative. There are those. I take your point that there aren't enough. I take your point that there, those things are there are on the margins. Those things are happening. I just don't think they're as extensive as you do. I certainly don't think they constitute the, the creation of a new elite. And I certainly don't think on the on the threshold of a Labour government that that new elite is somehow secretly running the country. In the last two minutes of this broadcast, I want to ask each of you, what should we all be thinking about most? What is most urgent? as we consider the question of the next UK general election. And Philip, I want to put this to you first, in a minute, if you would. I'll give you two, two answers. One, which is, which is the political answer, which is the cost of living. But the, but the second is a more important point, which is the issue which is the most important, I think, structurally within the country, uh, the domestic issue, is housing. I think it is a fact of the first importance that if you're 30, and even if you're one of the people who's apparently on the, in the new elite uh, heading into the university towns with um, progressive views, you're very unlikely to be able to purchase your own home. That is a fundamental change in a generation, a major political fact. And I don't see either party as anything interesting to say on that very big question. Matthew Goodwin, in brief, if you would, what matters most as we look at the next general election? I agree on housing, but I think also one of the most interesting debates to emerge after Brexit in 2019 was levelling up. We have some of the highest rates of interregional inequality in, in the Western world, and we need to hold both Labour and the Conservatives to account on going into the next election, ensuring that the small towns, the coastal communities and the rural areas who are continuously left behind are still at the forefront of our debate, because it would be a travesty if we just forget that discussion and that policy pledge, uh, and we really need to put to put it into motion and start to, to develop it in a serious way. It's been lively, it's been passionate, it's been thought-provoking. My thanks to Philip Collins, Matthew Goodwin, to our audience, and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. 
But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.